Hi, it's Grace Cowan. And this is Caitlin Brewer. And this is a second helping of Frogmore Stew. Give me more. Give me more. Hello, Caitlin. Hey, Grace. It's almost time for the Republican primary. Saturday. Can you believe it? I did this week a really deep dive into the history of one Lee Atwater, who is a really fascinating character, and also talk to Matt more about the history of the primary itself. I really enjoyed the conversation with Matt in particular. He is so knowledgeable about mm-hmm. South Carolina and the history of the Republican primary and I loved that he called it the working man's primary, the emphasis on the Saturday placement and how the Republican Party knew and wanted to be on a Saturday so people could come out in droves, which only demonstrates how smart they are when they're trying to do the opposite and not make Election Day a national holiday or voting rights ubiquitous throughout the states. One thing that I said to him, there's an old quote by Lee Atwater where he says, in Iowa, they want to see how a politician can trudge through the snow. In New Hampshire, they want to invite you into their house and have you sit on their couch and talk directly to them. And in South Carolina, we want to see you take a punch. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely noted it down and I giggled because South Carolinians are so polite. And so uh, it's interesting when it comes to politics. I know. I know. (laughs) It is true. I also really loved the conversation around the economic impact of a primary because I think it's something Mm -hmm. we don't talk about as much he just brought it down to the gas stations, restaurant owners, hotel owners. Obviously there's media buys. We all know about the media buys, but it's incredible. I mean, he estimated that it was what $60 million in earned Mm -hmm. media alone. That's such an incredible infusion of revenue into the state. And I think we're going to see when it's a contested democratic primary i mean it's just going to sort of be back to back infusions of cash into this state which for us down here in the low country usually you get the winter off of all the tourism and madness the southeastern wildlife festival is really where the season begins and so you have from january and then half of february to chill But with the primaries, that's all gone. (laughs) Now you just have constant craziness and infusion of people everywhere all the time. One thing that we did not really dive into with Matt that I think should be publicized is he is really close friends with Jamie Harrison. And they used to both be the chairs of opposite parties at the same time. And I think that that friendship should be publicized more because it's a big deal. It shows that when it comes down to it, the people in different parties are actually friends. And even though publicly it doesn't always look like it, the behind the scenes is typically very different than than in front of the camera. I love that. Look at South Carolina bringing us all together. Right? I know. Mm -hmm. But speaking of South Carolina not being together, how about that almost none of our state Republicans are behind Nikki Haley? 
I think it's incredible. I mean, I've read so much over the last couple of weeks about the Trump versus Haley debate in South Carolina. And the AP says over and over in multiple articles predicting this weekend's outcome that she and her team are bracing for an embarrassing blow in her home state. Mm. But she's actually still saying that no matter what happens in South Carolina, she's going to continue on. And I think that's so fascinating because I don't necessarily see anywhere for her to win. Even if Trump goes to jail next week, the Republican Party of primary voters are no longer the party that she represents or that she thinks she represents. Absolutely. Ezra Klein had a, a Republican pollster on his podcast a, a, probably a month ago. A, Chris Christie hadn't even dropped out of the race yet. She was saying that Nikki Haley keeps touting herself as the future of the party. And when DeSantis and Trump and others were pushing back, their comment was that most of her policies are harkened back to George W. Bush. She's the old guard. And I think Republicans in general, particularly at the federal level, are worried that if Nikki becomes the nominee, then they're going to go right back to 2012, which mm -hmm. clearly was, in their minds, disastrous. Well, you know, I love to listen to focus groups. Mm. <laughs> and moderate Republicans, when given the choices between Nikki Haley and Donald Trump, say they'd vote for RFK. <laughs> that what? is not a good sign. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so it's like moderates versus MAGA and the MAGA are winning. The moderates aren't even going for her. It's sort of mind-blowing. <laughs> I don't understand why, because you would think that the moderates would look at her and say she's more even-keeled, she's packaged well. Yeah, I might not agree with some of her more conservative policies, but in general, Nikki Haley has represented us well internationally and has been a governor twice. Well, I think that what people now say is moderate just aren't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you yeah. say I'm center left or I'm center right, you're really not. I mean, yes, everyone is nuanced, but there's this old cartoon of this man that says, I'm the moderate. And then the next block is women saying, no, you're not. You vote on policies that only benefit white men. And then there's another block of people of color that are like, no, you marginalize us. So everybody has their own takeaway of why they're moderate because their views to them seem very rational. And that's what we now equate to being moderate. Yeah. What was uh, Matt saying? He said the three pillars of the old Republican Party, the military, national security and economics. And then mm -hmm. he sort of added Southern evangelicals. I thought that was really interesting to your point. I think those things, military, national security, economics sort of sat in the moderate zones before. I think center left and center right could come to agreement regularly, but mm -hmm. add the Southern evangelicals and add hyper liberals. And those two fringes muddy the water for all moderates. 
I think there's this whole another thing that's happened, and this comes across a lot when you listen to people that are interviewed. And again, I love to listen to these focus groups. They take from wide swaths of people. So it's not like The Daily Show where they go find the crazies from either party. Yeah. This is literally just pulling from general population. And when you listen to the differences between how Republicans and Democrats respond to specific questions. The Democrats talk about Biden's age, abortion rights, or the border, like what's happening to the immigrants that are coming here and how are we going to incorporate these people into our cities and all of those things. So they're typically policy driven, even when it comes to the major anger over the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's still very much policy driven. And when you listen to Republicans respond, they talk about the deep state. They talk about the criminal mastermind of the Biden family. They talk about groomers and that Democrats are communists. They use very different language, which says to me that the difference right now, even from someone who considers them a moderate Republican, they're still using language that when Democrats hear it, they cringe. And that makes them feel like that person can never be moderate. Yeah. Nail on the head. And I think, again, ties back to the new media. This deep state Mm. idea really has taken hold since the internet and new media has blossomed. The Lee Atwater piece, literally the seeds that he planted in 1980 have blossomed. And right now they are in full bloom. (laughs) I mean, his main thing was you can't just sell your policy. You have to make the other side look like they are evil. And that is a playbook that has won in these state elections. So now it's become this national playbook of what is being run and it works. You can see it. You can hear it when people are interviewed that Republicans have real hatred for Democrats, that they really believe that Democrats are destroying the country. I think Democrats think Republicans are destroying the country as well. I think the difference is they think Trump is destroying the country. I think that it's the Trump movement, not necessarily Republicans. I think that Democrats still see the difference between the two. Trump is a born entertainer. And I think that it truly matters to the Republican electorate that they are entertained. Vivek Ramaswamy understood that, although people weren't looking for an alternative to Trump. I think DeSantis also wanted to be a more Mm -hmm. conservative version, but the problem is DeSantis isn't entertaining. He was made fun of about his clothes and his shoes, and he just didn't come across hard enough. Nikki Haley is not as entertaining as Trump. I mean, she definitely gets her zings in every once in a while, and she certainly is focusing much more now on his legal troubles. She talks a lot about the fact that he's spending more time in the courtroom than he is on the campaign trail, but she's still not as entertaining. And when you're not looking for policy, then what are you looking for? It's been said a lot that Nikki Haley has supporters. Ron DeSantis had supporters. And Nikki was the darling of the Tea Party, right? Which gave birth to MAGA. Ron DeSantis has created 
basically Trump's playbook and taken it even further. But they all just have supporters, whereas Trump has a populist movement. He's a conduit of the movement. And so that's a very different way to keep your followers and not just have supporters that question your actual policy. Last week, we talked about the fact that one of the ways that we can come out of some of this divisiveness is the ability to be able to question the effectiveness of your leader, which Mm -hmm. maybe to a fault, Democrats do constantly. Oh my Um, God, yes. (laughs) And I'm not saying Republicans don't, but... I think Republicans do it, but I do think that there's a tradition in the Republican Party, and Matt alluded to this, about falling in line. Mm -hmm. And even though there is divisiveness and there is worry that the Republican Party isn't going to come together in the general election, I Mm -hmm. do believe that there is a history and a behavior associated with falling in line and just voting for the Republican because it's better than whoever the Democrat And that goes back to the holy Atwater thing, which is you don't mess with policy. You just focus Mm -hmm. that the other guy is evil. And once you get to that place, keep voters' brains in this thing like I'm literally voting for my livelihood against this evil groomer, devil, and it becomes literally a choice of good or bad. And you have to vote red to vote good. That's where they are right now. And that is pretty frightening. (laughs) You know, I absolutely agree. In South Carolina, we have a staunchly conservative legislature and political leadership throughout the state. And there's data proving that there is a bigger middle ground. But This goes back to the primaries, which is the politicians will lose their job if they don't spew out the MAGA stuff because the people that vote in the Republican primaries are farther right than the rest of the people that vote in the general. So it's like this constant circle of how much further can you go to appease these few people that are primary voters. To that point, I have a friend who was an elected representative in the South Carolina House, and she used to tell me that every Monday morning, each of the parties have their weekly meetings as to what's happening and what the call to arms is, if you will. The Republican meeting lasted about 15 minutes every week, and the Democrat meeting lasted about two hours. It's because the, the Republicans got their talking points. If they had any questions, they asked, and then they left. And the Democrats mm-hmm. debated what was right. going to be talked about for approximately two hours. And she was like, why do you all only meet for 15 minutes? And finally, one of her Republican colleagues said, it's because we're told what we're going to do. So whether you're a moderate or a mega Republican, you are a Republican. I will also say this state has a Democratic Party that has had some difficulty over the last many years, Mm. but we have lots and lots of advocacy groups, right? We have REN, we have AFA, we have lots of environmental groups who are all pushing for policy within the legislature for AFA 
two thirds of the legislature doesn't even believe that the people AFA represents should exist. There are all these groups that try to push this policy, but there literally is nowhere for it to go. And so I think getting all of those groups together is what's key to move policy forward. But because they all have different viewpoints on things, it's very hard for them to work together to find this common goal. And I think that's one place where the Democrats need to be hyper-focused over the next several years in winning back some seats. So the primary is this Saturday. For Nikki Haley, I do hope that she's not blown away at the ballot on Saturday. It is her home state. I do hope that she has a respectable showing, but my prediction is Trump is going to win. It's not for lack of trying on her part. I will give Nikki Haley credit. I have had two people come to my house to talk to me about Nikki Haley. I've gotten something in the mail from her multiple times a week. Even her commercials are targeting me. 60 Minutes, Sunday Morning, like all the nerdy shows that I watch, she's all over them. She's all over CNN. She's coming after us. (laughs) And there's no way that she hasn't bought lists of Democratic voters because most of my friends are all getting Nikki Haley texts as well. And and so she certainly is leaning into the fact that this is an open primary and has really done the hard work to try and Mm -hmm. get people to turn out to vote for her. She hasn't said anything to my husband. It's all been addressed to me. And he's a Republican, so he's her demographic. I think she just probably assumes that he's going to, I don't know who she thinks he's going to vote for, but it's definitely not Trump. But she is coming after suburban Democrat women. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a smart play. I don't know. Maybe. I will say people have continued to ask me if they miss the Democrat vote, if they should vote in this primary for her, should they vote for the moderate Republicans? And particularly for the state primaries, what I want to know is why aren't we asking the moderate Republicans to vote for Democrats? Look at what is going on in your party. Look at the House of Representatives, the U.S. House. You should be running from that party like crazy and coming to the Democrats under this big tent who questions everything, but has everyone from Pramila Jaipal to Joe Manchin under their tent, and yet they're still functioning as a cohesive party, getting things done. That to me is my new retort when people say, should I be voting in the primary for the moderate Republican? My answer is you should always be voting for Democrats right now until your party gets its shit together. Amen. Mm. I will say we have accomplished as a national party a lot, and it has covered everyone from a federal level. And I think watching what the U.S. House is doing is embarrassing, it's dumb, and it's not productive for anyone. No, it's not, and it's a waste of taxpayer dollars that are desperately needed to do a whole host of other things in this country. So listening to people say that the price of chicken is still too high... Those are real things. And I don't want to go too deep into reflections on the economy, but I also want to talk a little bit about that Ezra Klein piece where he laid out all sorts of things about why the Democrats 
are not making a good decision with Joe Biden. He went through all the things like the economy is doing really well, but it's not resonating with kitchen table politics. He laid out all of the different policies that Biden has done, that Biden's been a good president, that Biden was able to bring a little bit of normalcy back to the presidency. What we are seeing is a man who over time has gotten older and Trump hasn't seemed to slow and all the things that you see about Trump, he's always been a crazy talker, but Biden's speech has changed. His movements have changed all of those things. And so he laid out that at the convention, Democrats still have the opportunity to change directions. I think that this piece is probably one of the best written opinion pieces I've read in some time. And I got to the end of it and I thought, all I want to do is talk about it. And yet at the same time, I feel like talking about it is fruitless because those that are going to show up at the convention are going to fall in line. I think there's so much fear associated with the disarray and disorganization of our democratic process right now that mm-hmm. Ezra's suggestion, albeit on paper, incredible, is not going to happen. Well, it boils down to Joe Biden having to drop out as the nominee. Because if he drops out, then those delegates are able to choose whoever they want. And that brings me to this really fun thing that you and I got to do this week, which was Mm. meet Gretchen Whitmer. I love her. vibe. She is incredible. I Mm -hmm. am a nerding out fan over Gretchen Whitmer. I think that she is touring the country, promoting her pack. And this is plan B. I think that's why she was in South Carolina meeting wonks like us. Let me tell you, I was like the Tasmanian devil getting ready to get there. And I am so glad that I did because I just could not believe the charisma, the connection with the audience, the clarity with which she talked about what she has accomplished. I couldn't believe how relatable she felt. Like I was texting with somebody and I said to them, she's almost Sarah Palin without the winking and the- Because she reads. reads Yeah, exactly. And and to be fair, she can't see Russia from her house, so she's not exactly (laughs) Sarah Palin, but she has the most- She can see Canada. (laughs) (laughs) She honestly has the most, and I'm gonna say adorable because it is, her accent is so adorable. And it's really engaging. She cloaks her intelligence in a way women are very accustomed to cloaking their intelligence. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's not intimidating. And for those of you listening who are like, don't cloak your intelligence. To, listen, let's be real. At that level of politics, you have to be aware of how you are perceived. And she is aware. Men do it too. I mean, think about the Al Gore, George W. race. George Mm. W. came out and he's like, hey, buddy, let's get my buddy Billy over here. Like he had (laughs) nicknames for all his friends and Al Gore is like, wah, wah, wah. Like he sounded ridiculous. And that is a big thing of 
85% of Americans have a high school degree, but only 27% have a bachelor's degree or higher. And so two thirds of our country is considered working class. And that goes from the manager of a fast food place all the way up to a small firm lawyer. They both consider themselves middle or working class. And she has a way of being able to speak to people that doesn't come off as this elitist. Like she's a Midwesterner. They're genuinely nice. They're not, to use your word, cloaked in like a sugary outside, but a judgmental inside. They don't give a shit who you are or where you're from. They want to like you for who you are. And she embodies all of that. She is a a very down-to-earth, approachable person. And I got to talk to her for like 15 minutes and we talked about all sorts of random stuff. She wasn't selling herself. She was like, let me meet your daughter, not what are your politics? And I felt like she is who we need to get behind. One of the things that she mentioned when she was giving her speech was that she was raised by a Republican dad and a Democratic mom. I think that she translates that. She had that moderate aspect, and she also talked about how she is partnering with other governors from other purple states Mm -hmm. to really create that avenue in the Democratic Party to be taken seriously and to influence national politics in a little bit of a different way than the Democrats have in the last, you know, 20 years. Well, I I think that for a long time, the Democrats have focused on how do we fix or help the poorest people of this country. And that is why this middle class resents not only the political elites, but also the the people that are in what's considered the poorer class, right? And because the people in that bottom 15 to 10%, they get free childcare, they get housing subsidies, they get food assistance, they get college paid for. And there's that borderline of where you make just over what's considered to be in that bottom 10 to 15%. If you're just over the line on that, you're paying full price for childcare, you're paying full price for college, you're paying for all of these things, and you're working two or three jobs. And then also watching this upper class succeed at rates that you can't even imagine. Mm -hmm. And then this lower class receive all of this attention from that upper class you're going to pull your hair out. And I think that is where her focus is. I think understanding how difficult it is, I think she she nails it on that. Couldn't agree more. And that's what Trump's done, right? Trump has gone to that middle class and said, look at these people that you're getting screwed. He's made it more into like a racial difference, but really that's who he's talking to. And if she is able to speak in a kinder language, but still highlight the difficulties of that borderline group of people, I think she has a really good future ahead of her and maybe even should something happen to Biden stepping into his shoes? Yeah, I mean, down to brass tacks and strategy, people keep talking about Gavin Newsom as that possible second replacement. I don't think he's it. I don't either. And uh, and who needs a president from California right now? I, I, I mean, we win mm-hmm. California. If you're going to be strategic as a Democratic strategist, Gretchen Whitmer brings 
everything you need. Mm-hmm. I am very excited about her. And frankly, the Dems have somewhat of a deep roster. There are people coming up that I think could be pretty good. And frankly, the Republicans do too. But they have a lot of young firebrands coming up that are bigger mouths than ours. (laughs) Agreed. Mm -hmm. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez takes the cake, I think, for the Democrats in terms of firebrands. And you don't really hear much from her. Like the Marjorie Taylor Greene on the other side, God almighty, she's everywhere all the time. AOC also isn't causing a ruckus in the theater like Lauren Boebert. So. <laughs> oh, Lauren Boebert. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I know. Well, I just, I was thinking about one of the things that Gretchen really talked about was that in Michigan, it's a state that is purple, essentially. I mean, right now it's more blue than red, but it goes back and forth. And I think that she has found a way to really be hyper-focused on state party issues. And I think that is a place where South Carolina has not been focused. And I hope that that is changing, but you know, in our state, grassroots messaging, We have very far-right talk radio. We have very large church involvement, particularly in the upstate that puts out very strong conservative messaging. We have strong state party messaging from the Republicans. We have funding from very big right-leaning think tanks like Palmetto Promise. The Republicans' Operation Red Map in 2010 hyper-focused on state governments. And we don't have that. Our leaders in the state are the federal leaders like Jim Clyburn and the outcome for what our state legislature looks like shows it. When you focus on state parties, that means you're also developing more voices for your deep roster. And we really aren't doing that. So we need to come on Crystal Spain. I believe in her. (laughs) I think she's got a big job ahead of her. She does, but she definitely seems up to the challenge. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have lots more Fridays ahead of us to dive back into this. What is your whole nother thing? We have talked about the conservative nature of the Republican Party here in South Carolina for the last few Fridays. And I have to tell you, this week in the House, it just blew my mind. Not only did the SC House approve Sunday liquor sales, but mm. they also approved medical marijuana. And (laughs) this is the second time medical marijuana has been in the house. And the first time it did not pass because the speaker pro tem, Tommy Pope, ruled that the 6% tax that was included was unconstitutional. What does that Um, mean, the 6% tax? You can't put a tax in the bill without an additional bureaucracy and whatnot. And they were adding a 6% tax to medical marijuana? Correct. The revenue share and benefit for the state, similar to the way Colorado taxes the sale. So Republican Senator Tom Davis, who's from Buford, got rid of the 6% tax, got it passed in the Senate again, and then sent it back to the House and is all but begging the House to vote on it before this two-year session ends in May. Hmm. Okay, my whole another thing this week, as you know, last week I was traveling um, with my daughter to look at colleges, but the airport, if you want to find true elitism and class war, the airport 
is your place. <laughs> the different lines of people sometimes has nothing to do with actual, like with how much money you make. It has to do with how many things you have signed up for, like TSA PreCheck or Clear. And then if you've been, like if you're a regular traveler, you're a business traveler, maybe you're a traveling salesman of some kind of tchotchke and you don't make that much money, but you fly all the times to your, you have elite status at the airport. And as someone who used to travel for a living, I was in the music business and was all over all the time on planes. I used to have lots of status and it used to drive me nuts. After you get through the, all the security and then you get behind the family that travels once a year and forgot they have like seven bottles of water in a bag and they've got like all these things that you can't, whatever, and you get stuck and you're like, I just wanna to get to my seat. Also on the airplane, if you're getting on and business class has already been seated and you walk by, it's like the walk of shame for the people <laughs> in first class. And you look at them like, I see you, I see who you are, right? And they're trying to read their paper and not look up at the plebes that have to go to the back of the plane. My daughter and I got bumped up to, to first class on the way there. And I was like, oh God, now my 16 year old has a taste of the good life. And this is so bad. So we get into our seats and watch the people walk by and you want to be like, no, I didn't pay for this. This was just a total accident. I have no idea why this happened, but it's really a difference in who you are at the airport based on where you get to sit, how you get through security. And it really doesn't seem representative of life. <laughs> It's one of the last bastions of true elitism in terms of services <laughs> like that. I mean, yeah. it's almost like Titanic, right? First class on the top deck or whatever. And it, it very much feels that way. And I relate deeply. I've ran a national organization for seven years. I was constantly every week on a plane, multiple mm -hmm. planes. What it came down to for me was I want to spend the least amount of seconds in an airport humanly possible. And right. so I would wait until the last minute because I had it all. Check, clear, whatever, you name it. Yep. I had it. I always got bumped up to the to business class. I ran a nonprofit. I didn't buy it. But I always got bumped up because I was constantly on planes. And I became so used to it that when I stopped that travel, I actually went through a withdrawal period because yeah. it was so intense. The sort of walk of shame and the flight attendant is always, what can I get you, Miss Brewer? You know, right. and <laughs> it's the most elitist experience you can get on a Tuesday. My husband traveled until after COVID, he was on a plane like Monday through Thursday, every week, different cities, often out of the country with his job. And he was like diamond or whatever. And then one time he and I were traveling together and we were getting off the plane onto the jetway. We hadn't even gotten into the airport yet on the jetway. And this man came up to us and said, Mr. Cowan, please come this way. I looked at him and I was like, what is in your bag? What have you done? What's going on right now? Some, and they took us down the steps, like where your luggage comes up when you plane side check it and into a Porsche. And we got into this car and it took us to our other flight. 
we got right onto the plane. We didn't even step inside the airport. And I was like, what in the hell is going on? And he's like, well, it's this thing called 360, like a secret elitist group. Like if your flight's canceled on the ground, they automatically change you so you can get to where you're going. You have your own person that you can call that can fix everything for you. And you get this service of getting into a car that takes you to your connecting flight. I don't even know about that life. I don't think I'll ever be 360 worthy. And honestly, after now that I'm fully deprogrammed from being on the road every week, I can't even say I would want it anymore. No. And the funny thing is he went through serious withdrawal after that. <laughs> and we I bet. neither one of us have anything even similar to it, but it we're both like silver. We're back yeah. down with the plebes. <laughs> we're we're the, in the nothings. But it was really some kind of something while he had it. So plebes for life, Grace. Plebes, yeah. Plebes seriously. For, for real. Yeah. All right. That's all the stew for today. We'll talk to you next week. Give me more. The Second Helping Podcast is written and hosted by Grace Cowan and Caitlin Brewer. Editing and IT support provided by Eric Johnson. Produced and directed by TJ Phillips with the Podcast Solutions Network.